Hello, welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm your host, Carla Nappi. I just finished speaking with Marta Hansen about her book that just came out, uh, Speaking of Epidemics in Chinese Medicine. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm your host, Carla Nappi. I just finished speaking with Marta Hansen about her book that just came out, uh, Speaking of Epidemics in Chinese Medicine. Now, this is a book that's quickly going to become must-read material for any of us working in the history of medicine um, in China, history of medicine in East Asia. Um, but it's also really fascinating material that gets at what it can and what it has looked like to think about how bodies are shaped by space, um, geographical space, and other kinds of space as well. Over the course of our conversation, Marta talked about uh, what brought her to the field in the first place, what kind of shaped her ideas along the way. Um, And we had a really interesting conversation about a whole lot of things, Chinese medicine and otherwise. So I hope you enjoy. Hi, Marta. Hello, Carla. We're here today at the New Books in East Asian Studies to talk with Marta Hansen about her recent book, Speaking of Epidemics in Chinese Medicine, Disease and the Geographic Imagination in Late Imperial China, and that just came out with Rutledge in 2011. Now, I've had the pleasure to read this um, recently, and it's a really wonderfully rich work that offers a great deal of fascinating material, and not just in um, the history of Chinese medicine. It's, It's a work that's about the history of medicine, it's about the history of China, and it's really about the ways, um, among many things, of thinking about the history of what it has meant to conceptualize bodies as they exist in space and with relation to space. So thank you so much, Marta, for taking the time um, to talk with us about this today. Oh, it's my pleasure. So Marta, could you start us off a little bit by telling us just a little bit about your background and a little bit about yourself and how you came to work on China? Well, that's that's an interesting little story in itself. I... um, started studying Chinese language in high school. I had a very charismatic teacher named Margaret Wong at Central High School in Minneapolis, who was a daughter of one of the generals of Chiang Kai-shek. And um, I started learning Chinese with her under a very impressionable age, in which she convinced uh, quite a few of us that um, because we had Chinese in high school, in a public high school in the um, 1970s, late 1970s, that we were, you know, um, bound and <laughs> we, we had to be committed to doing something with China and the rest of our lives. And quite a few of us took this up and actually are in Chinese medical history today. I don't know if you know this, but Hugh Shapiro... Um, also started out in Chinese at Central High School with uh, Margaret Wong, as did uh, um, actually Andy Andrew Schoenbaum, who is now at Bard College, um, and he works on uh, medicine and Chinese fiction. He he was at Breck High School, um, a private high school in Minneapolis, outside of Minneapolis, where where Margaret Wong actually continues to teach. Wow. So then, my interest in Chinese medicine actually starts at the same time because I, I come from a medical family. My father's a physician. I had a grandmother who uh, very early on worked in a medical laboratory before she got married, um, and then uh, another grandfather who was a hospital administrator at the University of Minnesota. So I had that background, and I um, 
I think in the summer of 1978, uh, just after I started Chinese, I took a course in acupuncture. Oh, it was, you know, general introduction. Maybe we met once a week for six weeks or something by a woman named Emily Davis. Um, And we read, we basically read Felix Mann's uh, introduction to acupuncture, which I think is an English translation that was originally in German, you know, from the Chinese. And I found it, frankly, incomprehensible. (laughs) I don't think we dealt with needling or needles. She just, she showed us the stuff that she showed us, her clinic where she works, which was at that time out of her house. I'm not sure the practice was legal at the time, really. And and, um, Edith, actually, I think I said Emily, but Edith Davis ended up becoming one of the most significant players in establishing um, acupuncture standards, uh, national standards um, in the U.S., she opened up a school in Minneapolis. She had actually ended up becoming uh, quite significant in the acupuncture community in the United States. And I, and I actually have since become quite good friends with her daughter, Barbara Davis. Um, so <clears throat> I also saw in uh, Margaret Wong's uh, high school class a video on the acupuncture analgesia, which is very famous, not a video, documentary very famous example of, you know, where Maoist medicine went wrong. It was a propaganda movie, but we didn't see it as a propaganda movie at, at that time. We saw it as the miracles of Chinese acupuncture. Wow. <laughs> so, <laughs> so then I, I went to, um, uh, I was very interested in, in Chinese medicine from that time. I wanted to become a practitioner of Chinese medicine, but I also wanted to do Western medicine. So I went to Brown University and I studied pre-med. I took a lot of science courses, but I also continued Chinese. And in my senior year, I've told my students this story many times, that you never know what's going to happen or what door is going to open or what, what, where you're going to go next. Mm-hmm. Things happen. And so I had to decide in my senior year between organic chemistry, which was my final science requirement, or classical Chinese um, and the main difference was that, of course, in organic chemistry, there would be two to 300 students, and the main purpose of the teacher and his uh, um, TAs would be to weed us out. And I would be the only student in classical Chinese medicine with David Lattimore. And uh, they met at the same time, and there was no way of changing the schedule, so I took classical Chinese medicine with David, with one other person who was actually a uh, Korean professor in, um, I think, physics or applied math who wanted to learn Chinese, classical Chinese. (laughs) Wow. Um, And then, so I never did get, then at that time, I think it was David Lattimore. um, No, it was the first time I took a Chinese history course was my senior year. Actually, the first time I took all humanity courses um, in my senior year, I I did with um, Jerry Greeter. And I did a thesis on the politics of medicine in China. And I would say he didn't just teach me history. He, he t- taught me how to write. Um, I had no clue. I, I really, I wouldn't say I had no clue, but I was not um, at all taking humanity courses. So I didn't have that much experience with writing. And he, you know, stayed with me all the way through the honors thesis on the politics of medicine. And it was either Jerry, I think it was Jerry Greeter who said, you should contact Nathan Sivan. And Nathan Sivan at the University of Pennsylvania was the only person in the country working on Chinese medicine. Mm-hmm. And uh, he read my thesis and he encouraged me to apply. So I applied uh, to go to graduate school to to work with him. I only applied to one program. I applied for one fellowship, which just happened to be the National Science Foundation Fellowship that another friend of mine 
in Japanese studies was applying for and encouraged me to to apply. I hadn't otherwise I would never have known to apply for it. And um, it was also at a time when my parents said, "Well, we got you through college. You're on your own, kid." And so, fortunately, I got this uh, National Science Foundation fellowship for three years and uh, started. Uh, and I got into the program at the University of Pennsylvania in the history and sociology of science. And I tell my students this all the time. I had no idea what history and sociology of science meant. I was, you know, basically since I had taken that acupuncture course. In 1978, I just wanted to read Chinese medical text in the original, not translation. And I, I think when I started graduate school, I, and my application to the National Science Foundation was very much about mining the pharmaceutical literature or the or the materia medica for pharmaceutically active drugs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, that's how I got into it. That's an amazing story. I, I This is the first I've heard of that story. That's incredible. So you were able to take Chinese that early and were interested, you were watching videos that early. Have you since gotten a copy of this video? That oh, I, I showed to my students. Um, actually, <laughs> I, I warned them ahead of time that there will be, uh, you know, experimentations done on live animals. So if they need to leave the room, they can. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. I know. I, I did. I actually got a copy of it from the people, uh, the China Friendship, China People's Republic Friendship. You know, I think it's China U.S. Friendship Association um, in Minneapolis, and they they had, I think, probably the same version that Margaret Wong used in our classes because it was from the Minneapolis China U.S. People's Friendship Association group that she was part of. That's great. Well. <laughs> So, Marta, the title of your book is Speaking of Epidemics, and you start in the opening um, with a discussion of lots of very interesting aspects of what the book will go on to discuss. But um, you talk also about um, or you introduce the idea of speaking of of, of epidemics or shoyi. This this clearly inspired the title of the book. Can you talk a little bit about how you came to work on epidemics in particular and what this particular concept of speaking of epidemics um, means and what it means in the context? of your work well i would have to say that i became interested in the history of epidemics in china through coursework i did with uh, susan nakan when she was still at the university of pennsylvania and she and um well she really turned my focus to the Qing dynasty and um, she also had just published an essay on new topics of history in the Qing with evelyn roski and brought up the topic of epidemics. It, it hadn't been really sufficiently studied. It was a, a new topic of research. And so I wrote, uh, um, and I was also working with Charles Rosenberg, who at that time was just um, did a conference, and then later it became the volume called Framing Disease. And he, of course, writes on um, history of epidemics from very interesting perspective. So I was working with Nathan Sivan and Susan McCann and Charles Rosenberg. So looking at epidemics in Chinese history seemed um, like a very good way to, I would say, use the um, qualities of my mentors at the time mm-hmm. to the best advantage. And I did a review essay of the literature um, in China, compared it to the history of epidemic literature that I w- was studying under Rosenberg for a term paper, um, and and I found that there is uh, you know really a lot of material for the Ming Qing period that hadn't that hadn't really been mined. 
And so that's what I decided to um, do my dissertation on this this emergence of a new discourse on on epidemics in the Qing period. Great. And I was interested in traditional epidemiology, just looking at how did Chinese think about epidemics before Western medicine came in, mm-hmm. um, more than what happened afterwards. You know, I just felt that that doing justice to the kind of history of their own approach to epidemics would be, you know, a, a good way, place to start. And I think that the way you chose to open the book really um, highlights that wonderfully. The, for listeners who haven't yet had a chance um, to read this really wonderful book, it opens with an account of a massive epidemic in the final years of the Eastern Han Dynasty or in the third century. And it, this account talks about epidemics in a number of ways that I think readers who are not familiar with the history of what it is to and what it has been to speak of epidemics and speak with epidemics in China um, may not uh, may not be obvious to them. So including demonic uh, causes is talismanic, climactic, and also socioeconomic factors that were all, I think, really interestingly bound up in, um, in what an epidemic was and how it was experienced and understood. So I think that comes out really well um, in this opening. How did you choose that um, account to open the book with? Um, it's, an, it's interesting when one moves from a dissertation to a book. I had to think a, a lot. And not just a lot, but a very long time, probably a few years of work, just to think, just to work out rhetorical bridges between chapters and also how do chapters fit together and what's the narrative that carries through the whole book. Mm-hmm. And so each, this is the opening for part one that explains um, the, the next two chapters, um, and actually the next chapter. Mm-hmm. And I... Um, I, I love this passage. Uh, I, I think uh, it's actually collected in a series of essays on epidemics um, from the Tushu Jicheng, which is the Imperial Encyclopedia from the 1720s. And uh, I, I had wanted to use it, um, but I didn't want to do a whole long history of how the Chinese thought about epidemics over time. Um, and I just realized, well, one, that Salger was a contemporary of um, Zhang Ji, mm-hmm. um, who I write a lot about later, or, or um, who wrote the treatise on coal damage. And once I realized that, I thought, I need to put them in the very beginning, because it's my way of introducing who Zhang Ji was, putting him in the time, which was an uh, extremely um, traumatic period of, of, of Chinese history, and certainly we know that a lot of epidemics were raging at the end of the Han um, period, and so I thought this would be a way of introducing one of the most famous physicians in Chinese history and putting him in a context in which we really know very little about him, um, except the, the book that he left, or at least what's you know been compiled by people afterwards and attributed to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I also thought, since it's a book about how Chinese spoke about epidemics, that I should always pay attention to the epidemics that were occurring at each time that I'm writing about, different ways of thinking about them and who, I, who wrote about them. And um, both of them were, you know, one of the first, the two first people to really single out epidemics on, and write, you know, one, this, this uh, illuminating paragraph or essay about them and to a, a medical treatise about it. And I thought it was very interesting that um, where Souger does talk about the social and economic factors that play into why um, 
certain people um, are more susceptible to epidemics than others, you know, because they're poorly dressed or they're, they're at, their, their diet isn't um, substantive enough. They live in, you know, destitute <clears throat> conditions. And then these kinds of things are left out completely in the medical text. I don't know if we don't know if Zhang Ji didn't write about them or that if he did write about them, they weren't included in later, you know, redact- editions of his text. So. Mm-hmm. And it's also really nice in terms of because then you go on later in the book to talk about this text, the Tu Chu Jicheng, um, in the context of the later development of ideas about smallpox and um, wenbing and things. So we'll get to that, too. Now, you go on in this uh, section, part one of Foundations and Inheritances, um, to also introduce some of the more um, conceptual aspects or some some of the other conceptual aspects of this study and the ways that it really is um, a contribution not just to the history of China or Chinese medical history, but also to ways of thinking about what it can look like to do the history of medicine or the history of health or healing in general. Now, you start out um, in one of the sections of um, Chapter 1 um, by raising the idea of a biography of a disease concept. Um, and so the, this, I think, is a major methodological contribution of the book. Can you talk a little bit for us about um, this idea that a disease has a biography and how that shaped the way you're thinking about this topic? Um, certainly. There, uh, thinking about constructing the book, um, I focus on three threads, mm-hmm. um, the first one being the biography of a disease concept, the second one, traditional epidemiology, which we've talked about, and the third one, um, the geographic imagination. And uh, to be honest with you, when I when I decided that um, I should do a biography of, of the disease concept Wenbing or, or warm diseases, it came out of Adrian Wilson's um, um, essay, on disease concepts and how disease concepts are different from the idea of disease as an entity. And when I when I read this this essay, I thought this is where my work fits in. But I'm going to have to write three more chapters <laughs> because to do a biography properly, it's it's a metaphor of a human life, right? right. There's a birth, there's um, childhood, there's adolescence, there's maturity, um, middle lifehood, adulthood. Uh, and middle age, I guess, is what I wanted to say, and um, maybe senescence and and death. But what's so interesting? So with Wenbing, its birth is back in the Han Dynasty and in these two early medical classics. So even though my my work in the dissertation was from the really mid seventeenth century through the um, early twentieth century, and I had done work on the on the Ming. Um, period earlier, I realized for the book, if I'm going to take the biography of a disease concept seriously, I need to do a long durée chapter that goes from the earliest mention at birth, let's say, of Wenbing, and and through its its early, um, you know, at least through its teens. <laughs> <laughs> and then, so that's that. If you think of the structure of a, a of a book in contrast to my dissertation, that's chapter, you know, three chapters right there that, you know, mm-hmm. only three chapters, five, six, and seven really come from the, from the, um, from the original, you know, draft, let's say, which we, other people call a dissertation. Um, then, then what's important about just conceptually the biography of a disease concept, well, with Wen Bing, it had a very early birth, and then 
2,000 years later, we're in the present, and um, it hasn't died yet. I couldn't write an obituary, which was so interesting, because then it made me realize I needed to wrap up the book, a new chapter again, on the SARS epidemic, because SARS was divine in mainland China, at least, as a type of one being, not as a newly emergent disease of the, or the first newly emergent disease of the 21st century, but rather an old type of disease um, that fit into this uh, uh, time-worn framework of the, of the warm diseases or febrile epidemics. And so, so that was interesting narr- narratively for the book. But conceptually... The writing a biography of disease concept makes one pay attention to the fact that disease concepts change over time. Mm-hmm. And so that it moves one away from confusing the idea of a disease with a disease entity. And so I had to make a methodological choice that what I was writing was an uh, account about diseases, how they're framed, and how they change over time, and paying attention to specific cultural historical factors, rather than the biological realist view of a of disease as an entity, where, I, where the idea of the disease gets conflated with a natural reality. And then this was my way of, of avoiding having to make retrospective diagnosis. And actually, it's a critique of scholarship on history of diseases that um, and in China, too, that I found um, where they make simple, I think, equations, one-to-one correspondence between our modern understanding of a disease, um, which I also think is a disease concept, with, with earlier you know, disease concepts, and especially problematic when you go to such a different tradition. Now, I don't want to say they're completely incommensurable, but when you take the position of a disease concept being a disease entity and, and you know, equating it with some realist biological perspective, you lose all historical nuance. You lose the meaning that people had in the past or how they experienced disease. And you especially you lose the, um, the understanding of how they responded. And, and in the present, ther- therapeutic options are lost. So what I found so interesting in the conclusion of the book is how, um, you know, why does Wenbing persist as a, as a, relative disease category or disease concept in mainland China um, because it, it's, a, one, a resistance to the narrowing of biomedical categories, but it also um, legitimates these older therapies, you know, these um, formulas that are quite complex, which the physicians that I, whose reports I was reading uh, um, at the time in 2000. And three, you know, we're applying integrative medicine. They they understood the Wenbing formulas and they adapted them to the, each patient, even to different regions where patients had SARS. And they also were using antiviral steroids, you know, oxygen tanks, etc. Mm-hmm. So I, I I think that um, I think that writing biographies of disease concepts is a, is something that also would speak to my historian, other historians of medicine, my colleagues who don't work on China. They work on Europe or they work on the United States or Latin America. Um, so methodologically, I thought it was a, a very um, useful uh, insight and way of organizing the whole book. Of course, it made me, it added another year or two on the labor, <laughs> but I believed in the, in the, in the, <laughs> 
So I was willing to put the effort into it. I, I, I think it's obvious that it paid off here. And, and actually, the, you're getting um, or you've moved precisely to what I wanted to ask you about next in that, um, especially for an approach to disease history that's this rich and this, you know, taking this biographical account, you're not just using in this book um, resources that are just, you know, strictly definable as medical treatises or medical text. The book really weaves together an incredible range of primary source documents from geographical texts to historical texts, biographies, medical texts, encyclopedias, um, and so on and so forth. What what does it look like for you to research the biography of a disease? And what was the research process like for you, um, especially perhaps for other scholars who are um, thinking about taking this approach um, or considering this approach for their own work? So what does it it practically involve? um, And what did it involve for you to research uh, this biography of a disease? Well, it, it's um, it, in the end, it required a great deal of weeding out. There, there is. Um, I think the strength and the weakness of of my book actually is that I have very clear threads that carry through. Mm-hmm. But for example, if you wanted, it's it's not a complete exhaustive biography of worm bing or worm diseases. Um, I had to choose aspects of the life of, you know, um, my subject, um, the main protagonist in this story, by uh, looking at two other intersecting points. That is the um, traditional epidemiology aspect of it and also the geographic imagination. Um, And so I, similarly, I don't think I fully, you know, exhaustively covered um, the history of Chinese traditional epidemiology or um, geographic imagination in Chinese medicine. Um, but for a book, you have to you have to edit, you have to select, you have to pare it down. The manuscript is probably half. I mean, the the manuscript was twice what the book ended up being. Wow. And you know, I don't even want to talk about the files of things I have, especially after this. The um, four treasuries, you know, the Imperial Library mm-hmm. uh, of uh, the Chenlong Emperor was on- online and searchable. Well, then you you know that just opens up. You know, you can you can opens up the can of worms or um, quite a lot of material. So the you know Wenbing is just it's exhaustive. You can't. I mean, it's not a, it's an exhaustive database. That, uh, it can you can't possibly read all the material on Wenbing or even on E. But you can pinpoint things. You know. Mm-hmm. I, so once those databases opened up, I was able to get a sense of the vastness of the subject, but I was also had the confidence to select mm-hmm. um, what I thought were, you know, the important, let's say, points in, and um, moments in the life of, of Wen Bing over, you know, the several centuries that I discuss it and, and instead of being exhaustive about it. So there are a lot of aspects about uh, when being, for example, clinically, that I think people who are practitioners would find missing in my book, um, but I, you know, I didn't think they were relevant to the other two threads that I, I carry through the narrative. Sure, and one of those threads actually um, gets us into the next section of the book, or rather, the next chapter. 
so not um, the book itself doesn't just focus on this approach um, of the biography of a disease, but it also focuses on conceptions of space in medical thought. And this is one of the really wonderful things, um, I think, about this study. Now, it does this by situating medical history within, um, and you mentioned this yourself, both the changing boundaries and divisions of empire in the history of China, um, but also within the local environments in which um, doctors that were writing about these topics practiced. Now, as you raise these issues and introduce this for us, um, one of the three, you start by talking about um, classic medical texts that actually go on um, in the rest of the study to be interlocutors um, for what's to come. Now, one of those texts is actually a text by someone you introduced earlier on in our discussion, and that's Zhang Ji. Um, and this is, uh, I'm talking about Zhang Ji's cold damage treatise. Um, for listeners who may not um, have um, had the opportunity to read the book yet, or who may not be as familiar um, with history of Chinese medicine, can you talk a little bit about um, Zhang Ji and the nature of his text, and specifically also how what you'd find in there was actually different from um, what you'd find in one of the other um, texts or set of texts that you talk about in this early section, which is the inner canon of the Yellow Emperor? Well, what's <clears throat> very interesting about the coal damage treatise, uh, at least what's come down to us, is that it's the first Chinese medical text to link patterns of disease with drug formulas. Because you, you just don't find that in the inner canon of the Yellow Emperor. I mean, there are some formulas in there, um, but it's not a significant part of the text. Um, and whereas the canon is more... Uh, the inner canon is more focused on primary doctrines, and uh, well, the second half, the divine pivot, is you know quite quite detailed on acupuncture and pulse reading and things like that, and multiple registers of you know, resonance between the individual and the cosmos. These these broader ideas, you don't have that in the in the cold damage treatise. You have this. Um, six different types of patterns um, that change within an individual um, from, you know, various yang disorders, which are characterized by heat, or yin disorders that are more characterized by chills and colds. Um, dryness would be, uh, dryness is more yang and dampness is more yin, for example. And that the cold damage treatise is also focusing on more febrile diseases and relating different patterns of these febrile diseases to specific formulas and adapting formulas to the individual patient's constitution. So it's, it's, it's considered really the foundation of clinical medicine rather than you know, doctrinal medicine as in the inner canon. And what's, what's so interesting to me about it is you, you don't... <clears throat> You don't, well, as soon as it becomes a, a canonical text, which is quite late, it's in the Northern Song Dynasty in, in the 11th century, and, and this I'm basing on Asaf Goldschmidt's work. Mm-hmm. Um, right, right as soon as it comes out, or it's more people, you know, other physicians and scholars, not just physicians, scholars are discussing it. Uh, I, you know, from my point of view, what's most interesting is they started to criticize it. You know, it wasn't adapted as. Universal. They saw that it was limited in terms of drugs that were being used. It was considered to be more northern, and others thought that it was uh, too, you know, regionalistic. It wasn't universal. Um, so then the skepticism thread was very interesting to me because I was interested in how 
physicians themselves were skeptical of their own tradition or critical of their own tradition before any Western influence. Mm -hmm. And I find it um, quite explicit in these uh, responses to the coal damage treatise in the 11th or after the 11th century. Um, And the other thing that's interesting is that they had a very different conception of, uh, I will say, geographic binaries. So before that, you have a northwest-southeast binary. Um, and you even see that in, the, in some aspects of the coal damage um, treatise, but it's more explicit in the inner canon of the Yellow Emperor. And you don't have an emergence of north-south um, until after in, after the Southern Song and the, the you know the split of North and South, and I, the, why did I get interested in that at all? Was because I was trying to understand a text I had read from the from eighteen eighteen seventies called the um, Differentiating Mirror on Southern Diseases, and I had this aha moment probably in nineteen ninety three. <laughs> Several years into working on my dissertation, why I thought, where did this come from, this north-south division of body types? And uh, I had to go back to the Ming, and then e- even before that, um, because it was not in the inner canon or these earlier texts. They had this other binary, north, north southeast. So part of that chapter is to set up um, when does the you know, when does north-south matter as a um, distinction in medical texts. And, and you talk about this, actually, for us, um, this eureka moment, you, you say in the book, in which you realize that this editor, Song Jiaoqi, is that right? Yes, um, yes. Right. And so he argued for a special southern constitution that required its own medical therapies. And this was um, really surprising in the context of the kind of literature that you had been reading. Yeah? Well, absolutely, because certainly none of the secondary scholarship, none of it was mention this at all on when being or on epidemics or even the secondary scholarship in Chinese or in English on the history of epidemics and or or more early on when being in China mentioned anything about these these kind of geographic divisions um, and of course at the time other f- colleagues of mine other students um, you know everybody was talking about the history of race I think uh, Decatur's book had just come out on the discourse on race and um, people were very interested in concepts of ethnicity in China, you know, with uh, Pamela Crosley and Mark Elliott and Ellen Oski, of course, Suna Cantu. And so I thought, oh, this is an interesting opening to a Chinese way of understanding human variation mm-hmm. that's really different from what other people are, are talking about in terms of concepts of race and ethnicity in China. Mm-hmm. That's right. And so this actually... Um, this gets us into the next part of the book. And uh, for uh, listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read it, the rest of this chapter is also really wonderful, you know, situating um, this story within um, a number of different levels of historiography that you're getting at with this uh, story. And um, these uh, re, um, we're sort of talking about these three intersection, intersecting themes that are going to follow us through the whole book, um, the history of Wen Bing, the geographical imagination, and epidemiology in late imperial China. And this moves us forward into what you call a deep history of the Chinese geographic imagination, which starts with this wonderful guy who I can't get out of my mind since reading this chapter, um, which is the story of Gong Gong. Can you tell us very briefly about the story of Gong Gong, um, just for, for listeners who haven't heard this before and how this kind of sets up this initial um, binary? Yes. Um, <laughs> 
this is this is interesting because I actually found the image of it, the, the depiction of it in a song encyclopedia before I was able to connect it textually to this myth. Really? Um, yes. Because um, nobody, nobody could explain to me why this image was this way. But I... Um, I, I knew immediately that what it was depicting because I, my my Chinese medical sources had you know discussed it so much, and then I then I did some you know, kind of research and I found well it wasn't that I did some research it's that I, I knew about this myth from teaching you know generally Asian civ courses or from you know reading about it, mm-hmm. and I realized that they were connected. So um, Gong Gong um, is. Uh, one of the origin myths, he he is a, a true, he is thought to have fought with one of the early legendary uh, mythical emperors, Zhuan Shu of the empire, and he knocked up against Mount Buzhou in his rage, breaking one of the eight pillars of heaven. They thought that the heaven above was supported by these eight pillars, and this was the pillar in the northwest. Um, part of, of, of China, snapping then one of the threads that supports Earth. And so um, this reasoning is what explained that the um, rivers flow southeast and that the stars or, you know, the celestial sphere goes northwest. So this kind of basic experience of the natural world, both heavenly and terrestrial, was understood by this myth, that there was a basic asymmetry to yin yang um and you know most people think well, at least in the new age understanding of yin yang that they're complementary that they're you know mutually um independent interdependent right mm-hmm. but there in this conception there's a and of course there's an understanding that maybe yang is strong, you know stronger than yin or more important than yang but than yin but no actually they're, they're they're very much interdependent on each other so there's a certain basic equality of of the genders let's say if not the sexes but in this mythological beginning there's a basic you know asymmetry and um I thought that that was very um, interesting to see that it had mythological roots and it was also later depicted um, as well that Northwest was considered to be more mountainous. And in fact, today you think of, you know, Tianshan Mountains or Tiantai Mountains, I should say, out in the Gobi Desert and Dunhuang area as being much drier. And then the Southeast um, in Jiangnan area around the Yangtze River and its tributaries, it's, you know, wetter and lower. And this basic asymmetry in geography was integrated into a basic asymmetry in um, in medicine, in medical understandings as well, and a way of explaining why, you know, people were susceptible to different things in different regions. And the northwest-southeast was the dominant binary then that was um, utilized to explain these kind of disease differentials one could say, or corporeal differences. Um, they were understood ecologically, just as flora and fauna were considered to be, you know, suited to different environments and, you know, had difficulty, you know, growing in the way they should in their appropriate environments when they were moved south of the Yangtze, let's say, so would, so would be people. 
Now, this sort of this is built up in this chapter with um, just wonderful discussions of um, the five directions and the way they shape different kinds of human bodies. And you have a discussion of the inner canon of the Yellow Emperor, and then you bring us um, toward the end of the chapter to a discussion of this per, uh, this shift south in the song that you alluded to earlier. What happens um, in this southward shift of medical learning in the song, and why is it happening in the song? Um, I should I should preface this by saying there's a, a great deal of writing on um, what I would call a geographic imagination in medicine during the Tong as well, especially um, for the far south. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought that the I, I would really look at the Song because um, it's a time when this uh, north-south um, asymmetry became um, expressed, let's say, uh, instead of the northwest-southeast. And one, you know, the main thing is the real political shock when the uh, Song court at that time was forced to move, um, abandon their capital in the north and and uh, flee the Jurchens in 1127 and set up a new capital in Hangzhou along the Yangtze River rather than, you know, where they considered to be the center of their, their imperial court and of Chinese civilization up in along the Yellow River Valley. And this, this was, I, I read the writings of a, political writings at the time and and it was really a shock and they they talked about the tu qi this local qi being so different in the in the south and how it was damaging to their constitutions and they really needed to regain the the zhong tu the the lands um where you know up in the where they came from um and they were you know militaristically incapable of doing that so there's a great deal of angst about it and about how it would, you know, affect them physically um, at the time. So I, I started to look. Um, well, I was very interested in in this, you know, reaction to uh, the coal damage treatise at the time and how it was understood to be uh, regionally you know, narrow and this discourse on central states or Zhongzhou. I was very interested in uncovering the actors' categories and their own understanding of um, geographic differences and through the terms that they used. So much of that section is about um, pulling out that geographic imagination. And I found that many of these, let's say, innovators that were associated with the Jinyuan dynasty that followed the fall of the Southern Song, they, they were, um, well, not the Jin, but the Yuan, they were very clear about being from the north, or they're very you know, clear about having different, having to adult, adapt the therapies to different regions, or that certain drugs came from different regions. So I, I excavated that and pulled it out um, in that chapter to set up a foundation for this vocabulary of the geographic imagination in, in Chinese medicine, and link it to their political vocabulary, you know, of, of not just Tu Qi, local Qi, but Zhong Yuan, you know, the central plain. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I found that the um, three masters that later became the four masters um, of the Jin Yuan dynasty comes out of this period, and they're all of them related to the north, um, and I thought that was quite interesting. And, what, and actually, this shift to the southern, what I call the southern shift, is not just about the emergence of a, of a north-south um, understanding of uh, 
medical differences that I, I actually didn't find until the 14th century in Dai Liang's writing, which I talk about in the next chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, I, I actually saw it quantitatively at first. I, I created charts of all the texts mentioned in um, Guai Chun's Zhong Guo Fenshang Yiji Kao, or his you know study of medical books by province in China, which is uh, basically gleaning all the material from local gazetteers. It's a wonderful two-volume set. And I um, compiled, um, you know, uh, quantitative, uh, let's say, um, not, I guess Excel sheets of all the different um, genres of the text according to how we classify them within each province. And then I did it also chronologically according to the dynasties. And there was a market shift south in terms of the productions of texts, um, and and also in terms of uh, this production of these Wenbing kind of texts in the in the Qing. So I don't use any of that quantitative material. This is part of the half of the book of the draft that didn't get in the book, but it allowed you to see it got into these three pages, and you see a couple charts there, and I you know a couple charts of probably you know far too many forty or something, um, and then you could just see a marked um, difference in publication that shifted to the south because that's. Now, Zhang Nan was yeah, most. Zhang Nan was the center of uh, of economic growth, and you know, the most densely populated area along the Yellow River Valley after um, the fourteenth, fifteenth century, um, in the period that most interests me from the sixteenth on. So, um, then with that shift in the population and I mean, demographic shift, and then shift in agriculture, rice production, and economic growth. You have a, a really strong emergence of northern southern differences as a significant binary that didn't exist before. Great. Now, and this emergence um, of northern southern differences as, as a binary in the song um, really shapes, um, as you tell us in the next several chapters, uh, medical writing in the Ming. So let's, if we could move for a moment to um, what's happening in the next part, part two, in which you leave the Song and the Jin Yuan and you move us to what's happening in the Ming. Um, you start out here with a really wonderful, um, you describe it as a study guide to um, 13th century examination essays put out by the Imperial Medical Bureau. And these really reflect the emergence of a northern-southern distinction um, in medical writings. Now, um, this can, this uh, focus on Ming text continues through this chapter, and you just just uh, talked about Dai Liang and Dai Liang emerging as a really important point of transition for you. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that um, might reflect the broader transitions that you see happening um, in in this period in the Ming? Well, actually, what I what I found so interesting in that um, again, this is a new part, so I was able to use a, a primary text that didn't really fit anywhere else, but it also illuminates that. For the examination, the northwest-southeast binary was still um, very much important in 1279 when these uh, two model essays were published. Mm -hmm. So in the end of the 13th century, northwest-southeast was the major binary. But then by the the 14th century, I I had um, uh, found – actually, Angela Liang has been a great um, source of – Material and um, you know, articles and her books have been very influential for me, as well as Charlotte Firth. But in this case, um, she pointed me in the direction of Dai Liang, who I would I would love if somebody else found um, someone else talking about North South. But this is the first case I found um, him writing about Northern and Southern physicians as being. Um, he uses the terms Bei and Nan Yi. 
um, in a biography of a of a southern physician, Shangxin, that he wrote. And and again, he uses it um, when he talks about his him getting sick, which I love because it's an it's a case where he he's a northerner, um, um, and he's. Uh, Mongolian, actually, and he's a uh, formal uh, official in the UN, but he's writing um, about being in the South and he becomes sick. And he's really not sure he should use any of these Southern restoratives. Um, but he but he ends up um, uh, agreeing with the uh, physician and, and taking them and and says, although I was born in the North, I've, I've lived in the South for a long time. Um, so it was no longer appropriate to use a purgative. You know, he needed restoratives. So it's an interesting um, source on on the malleability of the of the body. You know, um, that he he felt that since he had moved south, his body was not as robust as it was before, and he needed to then, you know, do as the Roman do, so to speak, and take restoratives. Mm-hmm. And he recovered. So I think and it's actually not many examples like that. Um, so this was a, a particularly good one, I think, to illustrate how they they felt quite anxious about moving um, to other, you know, regions that it would affect them constitutionally. Mm-hmm. And one of the really fascinating regions um, that you talk about in this um, part two of the book, in this section of the book, um, also staying within the Ming, um, is this emergence of ideas of diseases of the far south. And in particular, um, you spend a lot of time talking about the very fascinating case of Lingnan and how that really emerges as um, a sort of center of discourse for poison and types of disease and regionality in the late Ming. Can you talk for us a little bit about the importance and the nature of Lingnan um, in the Ming geographic imagination and how that sort of shapes the story of Wenbing? Yeah, well, this this chapter I, I thought I should conclude there because um, these diseases associated with Lingnan were not considered to be Wenbing, and so I think it was a, a way to chart out the geographic imagination of diseases along the frontier. Um, Lingnan emerges as a place of uh, the mountains in the south, south mountains, is a place of of poisons and miasmas and and not just the climate, but the um, people there are dangerous and not in the Ming. This is a very early, very early examples of it, not just in medicine and official poems and treatises from the uh, Six Dynasties period, you know, right after the fall of the Han, and um, you you see quite a, a lot of writings in in uh, kind of literary circles on anxieties toward this far south area. And I decided heuristically that I would just look at medical texts in the Ming and how they construct diseases of the far south, in order to say, show that something was different. And what I found that it was different was this um, linking them to new disease concepts, one, but also to, um, um, I would say, expanding the idea of poisons in the environment to um, contagions between people, contagion that could be passed from one person to another. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, of course, Chinese um, medical writing had ideas of contagion before, and it certainly wasn't a Western import. And there's a lot of discussion outside of medical writings and official treatises from the Han about um, well, people um, transmitting things between themselves and and animals, you know, being contagious between themselves. This is particularly strong in the Song um, veterinary medicine literature. 
So what I wanted to bring together were that many of these um, diseases of the far south were, were associated with the miasmas of the region. In fact, the disease concept Zhang only is associated with the far south. This would be you know, modern day Guangdong and Guangxi. Um, and then I fortunately was able to um, read Angela Liang's new book on, uh, the leprosy, on leprosy, which I would consider to be a, a wonderful historically nuanced biography of, of concepts um, related to what we would now call leprosy. And, and say that there are new conceptions of contagion also at this period with leprosy, with the new venereal diseases that we would now call syphilis. And she also is very um, sensitive to not making one-to-one correspondence, but looking at symptoms that were um, comparable at that time to what we would now consider to be leprosy or syphilis. Um, And I also link them to the frontier people, that that John gets conflated or miasmas with the people that live in the region. And then I link this very closely with um, ideas of goo poisoning, um, which becomes associated with male women. And um, then we move to what I consider to be um, two really um, clear texts, uh, examples of cosmological criticism in medicine um, that focused on diseases in the far south. One on shangshu or damage from summer heat, and the other one on, which is very famous, on venereal diseases. Um, and both texts I use as examples of disease monographs that, are, that were just really emerging at the end of the 16th century and situated in the far south that were skeptical of the dominant climatic configuration model of of epidemics. And so I use it as a a very, um, they're very much writing in the same context of cosmological criticism that I find um, Wu Xing to be writing within in the, when he writes his texts on febrile epidemics in 1642. Mm -hmm. And one of the really interesting things also to come out of this chapter, just to um, point listeners in this direction, is the issue of gender and women um, being a source of or related to these ideas of poison um, in this discourse of Lingnan and its related diseases and issues of contagion is also really interesting here. Well, issues of contagion are directly linked with um, conceptual, I mean, uh, sexual intercourse. Right. You know, about having sex with these women because they pass on goo poisoning to you or, you know, this, uh, well, they also link to the new venereal diseases to, from the new world to, to sexual intercourse, rightly so. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very interesting that, uh, that women were, were, you know, marked with this um, as a source of poison, you know, not just, you know, often we think of, Blood, or people have worked on menstrual cycles, or pregnancy as it being a period of of, of uh, pollution. So you have it this kind of theme that Mary Douglas wrote about, and that Charlotte Firth carried on, and many of her articles also carried carried through with uh, these disease concepts associated with lingnan and goo poisoning, which has a long history as well. I think of goo poisoning as a kind of compass point that has different. Uh, geographic directions and in, in this period in the Ming it definitely is associated with the far south whereas before it was pointed in the you know north northwest or to other um before I would say in the in the seventh century to mi- minority groups or tribes along the uh, other borders of China so in this point this time it's really goo poisoning which 
is considered to be a kind of magical poisoning, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, gets smacked onto women's bodies right. and, and women's practices. And it's interesting because you also give us in here a kind of capsule, um, sort of a mini biography of the idea of goo as well, which is also really interesting. Well, goo, goo could have its own biography, and I just had to select what comes up in the main text. That's right. So um, I'm going to move us um, just so that we don't keep you for two days on this book, which we... I'm sorry. No, no, not, no, apologies necessary. Um, It's an incredibly rich study. So there's lots of material in the next chapter um, that's also really fascinating on um, the idea of anomalous local chi and um, Wu's treatise on febrile epidemics. And um, and I just want to sort of mark that for the listener um, as being another fascinating um, part of the story on Ming, uh, medical skepticism and Ming, um, the Ming part of this story. But what um, you do in part three is give us also a, just a fascinating um, entry into how this idea of uh, medical region and the kind of the geographical imagination changes in the context of Manchu rule over China and, and the Qing. Can you kind of start us off by giving um, us some idea of um, why smallpox, which is where this story begins in chapter six, why is this so important to the Manchus and to Kangxi in particular? Right. This is a this is a time in which. Um, I would say smallpox was one of the greatest fears of the Manchus coming to China. And you can see this um, politically when they come come in and, you know, expel all families that had anything to do with smallpox outside the city gates. And they set up a separate Chinese quarter. And, um, you know, this is this is historically documented. It's very clear. And even and even before um, they went to great um, effort to protect their princes from contact um, with anybody who had smallpox, I mean, any kind of imperial burial, people who hadn't experienced smallpox were were not supposed to attend, you know, mm-hmm. um, and they had beetle soir quarantine, you know, areas. Um, and it goes back to the idea that they they thought smallpox was something that was um, congenital and had to, had to be released, and that they had a understanding that if you went south of the the Great Wall, or the passes they called it, then you would be susceptible to the warmer climate that would then trigger this uh, fetal toxin to erupt. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they had a, a thematic understanding of the um, emergence of smallpox. And they knew very well that if you had, did not have smallpox as a child and you got it as an adult, it was you know, de- possibly deadly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, 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 what was so interesting is that the Manchus were very concerned about smallpox. You see political concerns. Um, they, they wrote about it. They had a special physician who um, was actually uh, went and burialated all of the Kangxi's children, for example. And then he went on to have him go practice uh, burialation amongst uh, the troops that joined the, the the Manchus, the Mongols, tribes, and other tribes. In fact, it was a kind of reward to be very elated. Hmm. Um, and what was very interesting, there's such a contrast with the same period, you know, mid-17th century China in the in Jiangnan region, in Chinese medical text, smallpox is a childhood disease. Mm-hmm. So that, and, and that, that was not a major concern um, in terms of the, 
physicians I was looking at interested in epidemics. And so I thought that that contrast was a really wonderful way, one, to introduce that the Qing is very different from the Ming. We have, you know, foreign rulers. It was really traumatic. And um, and bring up the idea of matters of place and how it really matters where you're placed in terms of how you understand what are the you know, important epidemic diseases and what are the serious medical concerns you have. Yeah, it's a fascinating So on one half... Oh, I'm sorry, go on. No, and so on the one side, I, I was able to talk about smallpox amongst the Manchus, and on the other side, I, I could talk about the um, you know, emergence of a new discourse in epidemics and how it's situated um, in different locations um, in the in the Jiangnan area. Mm-hmm. And, and so this chapter also goes on to, um, and I won't um, uh, stay on this for too long, but for again for our listeners, it also goes on to talk about um, imperial perspectives on smallpox and worm diseases and epidemics by looking um, in turn at three major projects um, that each dealt um, in some way with imperial responses to smallpox. And these are the Tushu Jicheng that you um, mentioned earlier in our discussion, the Golden Mirror, which talks about um, different kinds of variolation, as you tell us in here, and the um, the four treasures of the Sukuchanshu. And so I'll mm-hmm. just um, kind of point that out for listeners. It's a particularly fascinating way, I think, of bringing um, the history of encyclopedic, what some call you know, encyclopedic literature or the history of compendia to bear on um, medical history, uh, I think, in a really fascinating way. Now, you go on here... Um, in the next chapter to, again, um, I think, introduce a really interesting conceptual way into uh, medical history um, by talking about genealogical narratives and sort of currents of tradition that emerge um, in the story of worm diseases. And you you raise this issue for us and you introduce four um, really different but really interesting authors and their texts that go on to develop in different ways this idea of um, disease and regionality and worm diseases in particular. Why, um, can you talk to us a little bit about why and how um, genealogical narratives and this, this idea of currents of learning and traditions um, are important to the history of medicine? Well, the <clears throat> one thing I, I wanted to argue, what I have argued, is that one being tradition was retrospectively invented, but then I had to look at uh, who were, who were the authors that were attributed to this new current of learning, or Shwepai? And what I found really interesting is that there's a, a genealogical division in the way that physicians wrote about their filiations, let's say. Mm-hmm. And the ones that were associated with this new discourse on epidemics um, very much affiliated with themselves with a branching lineage narrative. Um, that they you know stemmed off from more recent um, physicians or innovators from the Jinyuan dynasty or even later from from Ming and early Qing, um, and then there was another another genealogical discourse that was more um, patrilineal, let's say, and and had made its affiliations directly with classical texts um, and with the canon of the. the actually the the gold gold damage treatise and so these opposing genealogies are ways of thinking about one's affiliation to either classical text or to later innovations there being one single lineage that was the right lineage the Zheng lineage or a branching lineage allowed very different ways of um, 
dealing with the classical tradition and one's own experience. And so I found that my actors, or the ones that I was focusing on, were much more um, affiliated with this branching lineage idea. I think it, it opened up ways of articulating their own experience through case studies in a way that was different. They could move away from the classical heritage. And it was very much part of this, well, certainly they're relying on the classical heritage, but it was still part of this medical skepticism thread that um, I found very interesting. And it, it I think, also um, plays into the emphasis on case studies and medical case records as an example of one's you know, own empirical experience. Great. Exactly. How did you choose these four actors in particular to focus, um, to focus your study on for this chapter? I, I chose them because, well, I, I chose two of them because they're, they're known as the, you know, two of the main, um, say synthesizers of the Wenbing tradition, but I had a very different take of um, about them than the secondary literature in Chinese. Um, and I wanted, I also chose um, the one, the other ones, the other two, because they had um, a more regionalist understanding, which is completely lost in the present, um, you know, histories of, of uh, the Wenbing Shui Pai. And so I chose, do you want me to be specific about each one, well, why sure. I chose them? Sure, however, well, whatever you want. Because mm-hmm. I just feel that I'm taking up so much time no, for each no. chapter. No, no, we have all the time you need. <laughs> no worries. Um, but Wu Tang and Wang Shishong are considered to be two of the, of the you know, main systematizers of Wenbing in the 19th century. And so I, I couldn't not cover them. Um, and then Zhang Nan and, and Song Zhao Qi are barely mentioned at all, and yet they both dealt with texts that were um, considered to be Wenbing texts, namely Wuyoshing, Yegui, and Shre Shre. These are, these are, this is probably more detail than you need, but um, I argue that Wu Tang, he's, he's um, the first person to, in 1812, he publishes a book that brings together um, all writings on Wenbing, from the Cold Damage Treatise, from the Inner Canon, from later, you know, um, commentators, from other physicians, and, and he adds his own case histories and things like that. And what was so interesting to me is that he started out by working um, as a, let's say, a redactor or somebody who who was um, copying out texts for the Sukuchuanshu, you know, in the imperial court. So he had a very um, imperial view and he had access to all these medical texts and he doesn't have a regional perspective at all in terms of his own placement in a lineage um but he he is um you know compiling this first let's say synthesis of, of writings on Wenbing. but he does have some classical ge- geography embedded in his text and so i bring that out now the next one uh, but he doesn't affiliate with this I and mean, he doesn't say that he's writing it because he's from the south or anything like that um, he just has some um, conceptions of Northwest, Southeast, and and other things that are important for, for Wenbing. And then the next one um, by Zhang, Zhang Nan, not Zhang Nan, but Zhang Nan, A Stick to Awaken Physicians, is so interesting because he compiled these works together um, and considers their, that, that medical regionalism is very important. Um, and you need to understand these writings as coming from Suzhou. Um, and so you have Wenbing here very much intersecting with um, the geographic imagination. 
But then the next person, and then actually at the same time, there's other writings coming out of Suzhou that are, I would say, also regionally marked. Um, I think they're using this uh, association with Suzhou as a way of maybe perhaps selling these medical writings for Suzhou physicians and attracting local patients. Um, but then the first anthologist of warm diseases in 1852, Wang Shishong, doesn't appeal at all to this regionalism that I found in these earlier compilations. And they're dealing with the same text, but they just have a very different rhetorical strategy for legitimating their work. Um, he is very much, uh, again, synthesizing with the coal damage literature and this, this uh, warming writings, um, and he actually has experience with the cholera pandemic. So he's, he's quite well known for writing the first treatise on Huo Luan, or, or Sudden Chaos. <clears throat> mm-hmm. um, so I actually write quite a bit about him, um, and I would say he's a, a major systematizer of of Wenbing writings. And there is some regionalism ideas, but it's not the main uh, rhetorical strategy he uses for putting this book together, but rather he links himself through his father and his grandfather as his medical lineage to to the coal damage treatise. Um, so rather conservative, I could say, genealogy. Then you, I move out again to um, this, uh, this book from the 18... Uh, 18, late 1870s, 1878, it was uh, republished again in 83, where very marked regionalism. And this, this is the book um, on southern diseases that actually started this whole inquiry on the geographic imagination, you know, over, I don't know, not quite a decade, but close to a decade ago, where I just read this really interesting prefaces where each one um, talks about north-south, or it talks about the importance of Tu Chi, um, and um, again, a very different rhetorical strategy for legitimating that compilation, again, of, some, of the same writings um, of these uh, Wenbing physicians from Suzhou, Yegui and Shui Shui. So that's, that's why I chose those four. There are lots of other books attribute, uh, associated with Wenbing from um, the same period in the 19th century. But these four had such different orientations, but, and, and two of the four, um, they paired up nicely in terms of um, universalistic Kind of impulse and a regionalistic impulse. So I, I chose those. And then at the end, I, I, what I found really interesting is there's a strong convergence um, with uh, Western physicians, you know, in the 1870s coming in. And they also have a very clear, very interesting um, understanding of uh, importance of medical regionalism. They have their own geographic imagination that they're bringing to China. But it's just at the moment when they're, they're shifting to a modern nosology and you know, there's a there's a transformation happening as well as a kind of a divergence. So actually, I think of this conclusion of the book um, ending where Ruth Rogoski's book starts, <laughs> hygienic modernity starts, because she has she uses some she uses the same people uh, with uh, the beginning of her book, um, and so I I like to think that my book ends where you know her book takes off. So so let's talk a little bit about that actually. Um, there there are two things. Um, that I want to ask you about in this last chapter, which is also another fascinating chapter, and it takes us right into the 20th and 21st century. How uh, will you start off by talking about um, this book called Diseases of China, including Formosa and Korea? And this stands or seems to stand as an important um, sort of marker of the ways in which the the geography of disease is mapped very differently um, in this uh, early 20th century context um, as these idea, Chinese ideas are coming into dialogue with um, uh, 
people writing in what we might call Western or European languages about um, the geography of disease in China. Can you talk about uh, this di different way of mapping um, the geography of disease in China? Yes, I'll, I'll, I'll start by saying two sentences that open and, and are intended to conclude the book. And so I open the first chapter with, before the 19th century, not one inhabitant of China suffered from plague, cholera, typhoid, fever, tuberculosis, or malaria. Millions died, however, from yin deficiency, foot qi, cold damage, and warm diseases. Okay? And in this chapter, I, I say, according to the first edition of Diseases of China, including Formosa and Korea from 1910, in the first decade of the 20th century, not one inhabitant of China, Taiwan, or Korea suffered from yin deficiency, foot qi, cold damage, or warm diseases. Millions were dying instead from plague, typhoid fever, cholera, tuberculosis, and malaria. As the book declared, they had long done. So what is marked about this um, moment is there is a new nosology or disease classification for diseases. That, are, that is brought into China and, and used to both, you know, retrospectively determine what were the Chinese really experiencing, but also to start mapping disease distributions in China for the first time. And so it's also in 1871 you have the first distribution of um, cholera map. It's actually of East Asia um, and then later of plague. And you cannot have that kind of... Um, map, which is a new form of visualizing the ge geography of disease without an agreed um, terminology, you know, that, that the that person isn't having some syndrome or pattern, but an actual disease entity that's common to all these people, right? Mm -hmm. And you have to agree on those, which you have with William Farr in England and his, and his classification of diseases, but also important about William Farr is that he's collecting vital statistics. So you start to have you know, vital statistics being collected according to the types of diseases people have in different regions of China with the um, uh, imperial, um, oh my God, I can't remember, <laughs> the, the British Imperium there collecting, you know, um, what is it called? No, I can't remember what they're called. Um, it's not the Imperial Medical Bureau, it's the Imperial... Um, uh, British Imperial Maritime Customs. Mm -hmm. Yes, mm -hmm. and then in 1871, they they agree to the uh, person in charge at the time starts to publish medical reports, um, and so you have the first time a completely new way of you know visualizing the distribution of diseases than you had possible before that. I mean, it's, you didn't have it possible before that in Europe either, but in China, it's it changes everything. I mean. What's so interesting is with the new disease nosology or new way of understanding disease and the new vital statistics that are being gathered, I would admittedly scattered across the empire, depending on where physicians are located, um, and new medical reports, you can, um, there's just a, a new imagination um, of how diseases are understood and how they're, then ability to visualize how they're distributed across, you know, the geographic landscape. Um, so I, I think that that's a really an epistemological rupture. I don't think there's any other way of doing it. I talk about epistemological ruptures in China within their own context. But here I talk about an epistemological rupture that's, you know, China and West. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you so much. Now, 
you leave us um, at the end of the book with um, another really wonderful case study in which um, a disease category that, uh, or a disease concept that many of us have um, are familiar with, have, know something about, perhaps lived through in our lifetimes, SARS actually becomes um, a window through which to look at when being and the, the sort of modern um, phase of the life of this disease concept um, in the 21st century. Can you talk um, or can you take us through um, a little bit how did uh, this story of SARS and how it actually also reflects um, the story of when being? Well, this was, um, I mean, all of us were just shocked, of course, when SARS, I mean, you couldn't miss it. It, it, it. The cover of the New York Times covered it for months, mm-hmm. um, starting in March of uh, 2003. And um, at the same time, on the, on the web, I was getting reports from the Chinese medical community that um, this was a type of Wenbing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was, I was reading the literature in Chinese um, and also through the, the um, kind of internet, internet networks, people interested in Chinese medicine, and the newspapers, and I saw such a disconnect. And then when I realized that this is a type of wenbing, I, I had, you know, I was much more invested in it. Um, and I, I thought of it would be a wonderful conclusion to my book. Oh, finally, a kind of a hook. People might make it inter- be, be interested in, you know, something that's, uh, you know, still lives on today and is still relevant for practitioners in China today, especially with the SARS epidemic. And this is something where Suna can, when I talked to her about this, said, oh, no, not another chapter. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, but we, had, we talked about it and she, she actually not just her, quite a quite Charlotte Firth, quite a lot of people thought this is not something you need to put in your book. Really just stay late Imperial China. You have enough material. Certainly I had enough material and the, and the subject is interesting enough as it is. Um, so I admittedly had to do a lot of work to, to make um, SARS relevant to the story and I was going to leave it out. But when I, um, you know, made a commitment to doing a biography of the disease concept when being, I couldn't leave it out. Mm-hmm. And um, it just became a very, um, one, I, I was very um, committed to letting the story be known that more than 50% of the patients in China during that epidemic, in mainland China, not outside, were treated with both um, Chinese um, medicine coming out of this Wenbing tradition and with Western um, drugs and approaches. And I thought that that story should should at least go in the Anglophone world and not just be within the Chinese-speaking world. Um, why? Because I thought that that understanding, that way of framing the disease, legitimates treatments that, you know, seem to be effective for these patients. And that we shouldn't, um, you know, ignore that possibility of other therapeutic modalities being simultaneously effective with the best of modern biomedicine. And clearly there are limitations to biomedicine. So there were, I call it my kind of, I wrote an article on this mm-hmm. came that's recently come out as well. And I considered a kind of coming out in terms of, <laughs> Being committed to, to looking at the efficacy of Chinese medicine in the modern world. But historically, I was also very interested in it as well because when you're looking at the biography of this disease concept, well, it's not just one disease concept, but many disease concepts um, still thrive very much in China today. Even Zhang um, continues to have meaning for, for um, Chinese um, in far south um, China as something that's not malaria. 
And so I think that that persistence of these older um, disease concepts is something worth studying and understanding. And perhaps I came up with a simplistic argument, but I do consider it a form of resistance to this narrowing of of not just uh, disease concepts, uh, but understanding of one's illness and treatment modalities that may potentially be effective. Um, and, and it happens to be um, a very useful kind of lesson that these disease concepts can't aren't translatable one to one. Perhaps because so much is lost when you do that, and I, I think that's why Wenbing doesn't have a one to one correspondence with one particular epidemic like um, other concepts have like Shanghai now is you know thought to be a kind of typhoid you know or Jiangxi is sometimes Jiang is sometimes translated as malaria and whereas malaria but one being no it's you know warm diseases it's the way I ended up translating it because it's more um, you know general category that doesn't have a one-to-one correspondence so I think methodologically and conceptually that's uh, you know an interesting um, subject to pursue and unpack you know why does the meaning continue into the present, right? Absolutely. And <laughs> it has I, value to people. Definitely. I think this case um, showed it really well, too. And it was a great note to end the book on, especially um, for me, having lived in Beijing during the SARS outbreak. And the the, the most um, powerful image I can remember, or the, the image that sticks in my mind, is um, at some point... Uh, we, the, whoever was supplying face masks, um, which everyone was wearing um, in Beijing, had run out. And so people started cutting ladies' brassiers in half and wearing half <laughs> of a bra over their face. So fun, fun times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've, I've actually met quite a few people who were you know, quarantined during the SARS epidemic. Yeah. It was yeah. crazy. Well, it was crazy. And no, there, and I, I, I still think that uh, there's another book to be done on the after effect of the SARS epidemic because so much of the – there's a big debate in China amongst people who thought that Chinese medicine should be eradicated and those who thought, no, look at how effective it was during the SARS epidemic and other people saying it didn't – you know, it wasn't it, – it's just, you know, completely superstitious, et cetera. And then the Chinese government ended up, you know, standing behind a – the proponents, uh, supporters of Chinese medicine, and w- financially, I would add, why you know, when I went back to China, some of these decrepit old buildings from the old China Academy of Traditional Chinese Medicine that I'm sure you're familiar with in Dongzhimen in Beijing has been, you know, completely refurbished, and the library looks beautiful again. <laughs> Absolutely. So is this, um, I was actually going to ask you what you're working on now. So is this um, a direction that you're taking your work in immediately, or if not? What's, no, what's I would love to have a graduate student. <laughs> I'd love to have someone do it. No, I, I, I'm actually doing something that comes out of the book but didn't, didn't get into the book at all. <clears throat> um, this um, um, that side of Chinese epidemiology that has to do with time rather than space in terms of trying to predict when an epidemic would occur in this older uh, 60-year cycle. Um, and in doing that research for the book um, and, you know, these uh, 60-year cycles and trying to predict epidemics and when um, they would occur, I found that the Chinese used um, hand mnemonics, which is a form of arts of memory. And I, the earliest examples go back to the uh, in medicine to 1099, but at, 
at the time that I was uh, I started thinking about arts of memory, I found these hand diagrams in a 1624 book. Marta, I think we've illustrated okay. inner canon or classified canon. You may have heard of it, the Leijing Tui by Zhang Jiebin. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very too much. We're done. Hello. Anyway, Hi. so I just um, want to say I'm working on arts of memory broadly and not just medical examples. Yes. Great. Hello. Oh, oh no, the um, the connection just kind of timed out a little bit. So so you okay. can continue. We just I couldn't hear you for. Well, um, you can cut out most of that. But basically, I'm working on Chinese arts of memory, and some of the examples are in medicine that are trying to predict epidemics. But a lot of the examples have to do with day-to-day fate prediction, have nothing to do with medicine. They come out of um, almanacs, encyclopedias, um, all sorts of other types of texts. So that's my new project. It's um, called Understanding is Within One's Grasp, which is a translation of the Chinese Liaoran, Zai Wu, hand mnemonics and Chinese arts of memory. Great. And that's why I'm in Germany. I've got many German colleagues interested in this. Well, that's well. We can't wait to see that book as well. Um, so, best of luck with the research, um, and thanks so much, Marta, for taking the time um, to talk with us about this book. It's a really fascinating study, and on many, many levels—methodological, conceptual, um, and uh, as well as um, historical. So, thank you very much. Thank you, Carla. It was really fun. I enjoyed it immensely. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks so much, and we'll see you again next time.